Let us pray. Send out your light and your truth that they may lead us and bring us to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Be salt. That sounds pretty good. Be light. That sounds even better. Be righteous. That doesn't sound as good. <laughs> to our ears, that sounds like something else. And yet Jesus tells us we cannot be salt and we cannot be light without also being righteous. When Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, we have a very hard time hearing that. Almost any time anyone uses the word righteousness, we immediately and intuitively add the word self, as in self-righteousness. This is our cultural conditioning. And self-righteousness, we assume, is a very, very bad thing indeed. Indeed, we do much the same thing when we hear the word Pharisee. That word has almost entirely pejorative associations for us. We think of a Pharisee as someone who is, by definition, self-righteous. So when we hear Jesus say, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, it's likely to cause a bit of cognitive dissonance for us. Be salt, great. Be light, wonderful. Be righteous, mm. <laughs> Now we should recognize just how remarkable and how strange our reaction to the word righteousness is. Christians have historically not had the kind of knee-jerk response to that word that we do. For centuries, what it took to be righteous was an abiding preoccupation of both Jews and Christians. When the prophets of the Old Testament called for justice, they did so because they were motivated by a concern for the righteousness of God's people. You could not have justice without righteousness. And there is a similar concern for righteousness evident throughout the New Testament as well. Not only Jesus himself, but Paul and most of the other writers of the New Testament consistently describe righteousness as an essential part of the life of faith, something for which all Christians should strive. And we see this concern for righteousness not just in the Bible, but also in the history of the church as well. It shows up in the explanation for the incarnation provided by both Athanasius and Cyril. Why did God become flesh? For righteousness' sake. It's evident throughout the works of Augustine. It's the motive energy behind Anselm's treatise. Why did God become a human being? Something Martin Luther obsessed about <laughs> for many years in a variety of different social and cultural contexts. The concern with righteousness was an important part of Christian faith and practice. Today, not so much. Righteousness sounds so old-fashioned. It sounds so unenlightened. It sounds so legalistic. It can even be seen as unfaithful. 
After all, isn't the whole point of the gospel that we can't be righteous, so Jesus is righteous on our behalf. So we should not strive for righteousness. That's works what? Works righteousness. With assumptions like these, is it any wonder that it's hard for us to hear what Jesus is actually saying to us in today's gospel? Be salt, be light, and do that by being righteous. So first we have to unlearn the assumptions that we may have about righteousness and instead we have to see righteousness as something that is very, very worth our having. Second, we have to understand exactly what it takes for us to be righteous people. Jesus would not have made such a point of encouraging his followers to pursue righteousness unless he thought it was both worth pursuing and something that his followers could actually achieve. And this is the point at which it's very helpful for us to remember that today's gospel lesson is just one small part of a much larger conversation. This passage is embedded in that section of Matthew's gospel that we call the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew's gospel is 28 chapters long and three of those chapters are dedicated to the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter five, chapter six, chapter seven. If you haven't read those recently, you might want to go and just take a look at them this week. We heard about the Beatitudes last week, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. We're hearing it again this week. You will hear it again next week. So the more familiar you can become with the Sermon on the Mount, the more this week's gospel lessons will make sense to you. Even the Last Supper, the arrest and trial of Jesus and the crucifixion do not get as much space in Matthew's gospel as does the Sermon on the Mount. This is clearly a major part of Matthew's account of the ministry and the message of Jesus. And now you're going to watch me do something very foolish. I'm going to rush in where angels fear to tread. I'm going to summarize the whole of the Sermon on the Mount, a full tenth of Matthew's gospel, by reducing it to just two ideas. <laughs> two themes that are very close to the heart of what it means to be righteous. The first theme is this, the ways of God are different from the ways of the world. The second theme is this, God will never abandon those who follow the ways of God. That's the Sermon on the Mount in a nutshell. God's ways are different from the ways of the world and God will never abandon those who follow the ways of God. Over and over throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus provides example after example of just how different the ways of God are from the ways of the world. Blessed are the rich. No, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are happy. No, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the strong. No, Blessed are the meek. We heard that last week. Blessed are those, get ready, here it comes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. <laughs> those are not the ways of the world. Do not resist an evildoer. Turn the other cheek. Give to everyone who begs from you, whether or not 
you think they deserve it. Do not hate your enemies. Love your enemies. Does any of this sound like what we usually hear from the TV and the internet and the radio about what it means to live a healthy, meaningful life in today's world? The ways of God are not like the ways of the world. This is why the second theme is so important. God will never abandon those who follow the ways of God. Your father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Your father knows what you need before you ask, so just ask. Do not worry about your food. Do not worry about your clothing. Do not worry about your life. Your father knows all about it. Ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Strive first for the kingdom. Strive first for the righteousness of God. Everything else will be taken care of because God will never abandon those who follow the ways of God. Those two themes give us the clue to understanding what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness. They enable us to recognize what it might mean for each of us to live with a righteousness that exceeds even that of the scribes and Pharisees because those themes help us recognize that righteousness has very little to do with legalism or moral superiority or ritual purity. Now, don't hear what I did not say. <laughs> what I did not say is that Jesus is setting aside the law or the demands of the covenant in favor of some kind of antinomian, freewheeling, happy-go-lucky spirituality. Do not think Jesus came to abolish the law and the prophets. He himself told us, I did not come to abolish, I came to fulfill. Jesus came to call us to a way of righteousness that in every way exceeds the legalism and the ritual purity and the strict moral rectitude of the scribes and Pharisees. But he also came to show us that righteousness is made possible by one who knows us and who loves us enough to give us everything that we need and more, even before we ask. Now, it is not incidental that we are hearing this particular gospel on this particular day in the church year. You may be thinking, well, this is Epiphany. What does this gospel have to do with Epiphany? What's with all this talk about righteousness? Save that for Lent. You're right. This is Epiphany. Part of what this gospel is telling us is that the showing forth, the revealing of the glory of God in the world is realized in and through our pursuit of righteousness. He, because he is the revelation of God in the world, Jesus is himself the righteousness of God, and we who are called to follow him are called to show forth his righteousness, just as we are called to show forth his light and his glory. On this day, our continued observance of the season of Epiphany helps us recognize that we are called to be the place where God's righteousness and God's glory is manifest in the world. That is what it means to be salt. That is what it means to be light. And this day, these few weeks, mark something of a transition. We begin to come down from the spiritual mountaintop that began with Christmas, continued through our observance of the Feast of the Holy Name, the beginning of Epiphany, the Feast of the Presentation, all that was great. This particular day in the church year used to have a name that marked the transition 
that we're in the middle of making. Some of you might remember this. Used to be called, any guesses? Septuagesima. Oh, what do you say? <laughs> Septuagesima, right? The Jessima Sundays. Anybody remember this? Septuagesima, today is the first of the four Jessima Sundays. Septuagesima, sexagesima, quinquagesima, quadragesima. Now, the names sound fancy, but they're really very straightforward. Septuagesima, 70 days until Easter. Sexagesima, 60 days until Easter. Quinquagesima, 50 days before Easter. Quadragesima, 40 days until Easter. The Jessima Sundays historically marked the transition from Epiphany to Lent. And they were intended to help make the point that our observance of the feasts of the church have to be, our connect, have to be connected to our observance of the fasts of the church. Feasts and fasts go together. It's no good trying to stay on the mountaintop of Christmas and Epiphany and Holy Name and Presentation. The path that leads to righteousness and to life is one that leads down the mountain, through the wilderness, toward Jerusalem. In the next few weeks, we're going to be given the opportunity to follow Jesus as he makes that transition in his ministry. So today, it is still Epiphany. We give thanks. We continue our observance of Epiphany by giving thanks not only for the gift of seeing the glory and the righteousness of God manifest in the world, We also give thanks for the great gift of being invited to share in being the place where God's revelation is manifest. And today we are reminded that we are to pray for the grace to do all that our Lord asks of us. He calls us to be salt. He calls us to be light. And in so doing, to live lives that prompt others to give glory to God. When others look at us, they should look at us and see, there's the glory of God manifest in the world. Thanks be to God. Jesus calls us to be righteous, not just to act righteous, but to be changed into people for whom the law and the covenant are not burdens, but are rather the path to life and to freedom. So may we go forth this day and do all that Jesus has commanded us to do and teach others to do the same, that we might be among those who are great in the kingdom of heaven and who live lives to the glory of our Father in heaven. Amen.